Well, it is my joy to give a special introduction to a guest we have who's going to be speaking God's Word to us today. And that's my friend Lance Quinn, Dr. Lance Quinn, who I have known for a long time. In fact, we were reflecting this weekend that his, um, his oldest two kids were in our wedding, mine and Kim's wedding, uh, as ring bearer and a flower girl. And they're in their mid-30s now, and we started doing some calculus, and I, I didn't like the math that it was showing me. Uh, but I've known Lance for so long. He actually uh, was a part of doing mine and Kim's premarital counseling. He did part of our wedding. So we go way back. We actually both ended up at Grace Church in California at the same time, I think in 1983. Uh, eventually, both of us would serve uh, as executive pastor to John MacArthur. Um, he was before me. I was after him and learned so much about my ministry responsibilities and watching him. I was talking to him earlier and just said one of the most difficult things, I, I introduce people a lot, it's hardest to introduce someone you know well because I could tell you all of the, the normal stuff. Uh, he's been in ministry almost 40 years, pastored multiple churches, multiple decades, uh, two doctor's degrees and where he went to school. That would all be helpful but it wouldn't tell you about my friend Lance. Lance and I have been through many of the fires together. We have seen the darts of the enemy we just sang about. And I've seen him prove himself faithful. I've watched his life from a distance and up close. And they're, they're the same. And uh, he is here this weekend. He's on the board of ACBC and also was here for a colloquium. And um, uh, we just ask him to stay over because he's also the vice president, currently now serving as the vice president to the Expositors Seminary. And so uh, obviously has a, um, a vested interest in that. By the way, speaking of that, Aaron and Anna Smith, are you here? Where are you? Did I see you? Or Aaron, good to have you back uh, uh, for this weekend. Uh, one more year, right? Uh, and serving up with Bob and Rod in Hampton. But he's here uh, with uh, expositors in our, our kickoff. So uh, it was just a, it was perfect timing with him being here to say, Lance, would you come and bring us the word? So I know you're going to be blessed by what you hear. Can you please give a warm Mission Road welcome to my friend, Lance Quinn? Well, what a joy and a privilege to be with you, and uh, I'm grateful to the Lord for not only my friendship with Rick and Kim, but having known of this ministry for many, many years, even prior to Rick's arrival, but to see what the Lord has wrought in these days. Um, you look like multiplying rabbits. Just every time I come back, there's, there's more people which means that there are more people hungry for God's Word to be excellently preached, and so I'm grateful to be here with you. And as Rick said, we have gone back a long, long time. I guess next year it'll be four decades of knowing each other, and um, I'm so grateful he has put up with my friendship with him, and uh, I'm sure he would say the same thing. So uh, you can't separate us. We're, we're going to be together not only here, but in all eternity. So we're grateful to the Lord for the opportunity to be 
in partnership together with the Expositors Seminary. And uh, you might not have heard of this, but at the graduation in May, where Rick and I were in attendance in Jupiter, Florida, our beloved Dr. George Zimick turned 80 years of age the previous month, and he's now retiring from his post. And at the age of 80, when we graduated another nine men uh, there in May, that culminated the 80th graduate of the Expositor Seminary. So that's a pretty wonderful providence to be 80 and to have graduated the 80th man. And um, we're looking forward to uh, the next uh, series of men who are coming through. Had a wonderful time yesterday, uh, not only at the uh, picnic yesterday afternoon, but in the convocation where we were all being introduced to the new students and even the new students here. And then, of course, by way of the live streaming, we were able to be introduced with the men from the other campuses also. So it's just, it's just a privilege to be able to be involved in the ministry of training men. And I wanted to say thank you so very much for your part and your partnership in the ministry of the Expositors Seminary. I know that you know how blessed you are with the men who are studying and who often even are able to come on the staff and who serve, <clears throat> excuse me, in associate roles and whatnot, but also for the opportunity uh, for you to be a partner in the training, although you might not think of it this way, for all of the other campuses because we're all connected together. And so this is, uh, this is good. The Lord is good, and we're grateful for it. As I thought of what I might share with you this morning from God's Word, that song that we sang, that second song that uses that word vapor, I thought I might bring to you a message from God's Word that speaks much about this concept of our living a life that is filled with shortness, a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. That's how fast life can be. Now, if you're young, you might say to yourself, oh, I've got my whole life ahead of me. And that is true in one sense, but usually what we mean by that is we've got decades and decades and decades, and we've got so much time when the Bible says our time is so very short. Moses says himself in Psalm 90 that if we live 70 years or if reason by strength 80 years, we've lived a long life. And we also know that the Bible makes it very clear that we live a life of trouble, including a life of death. Sure, born, but we are born to die. It's the truth of our sin-cursed world. As I have been thinking in the decade of my 50s, now being 62, I look backwards in a lot of ways more than I'm looking forward, it seems, because I'm trying to learn all of the lessons that the Lord would want me to have, including the understanding in a family, my family, of death. Now, I don't want to sound too overly morbid, 
because I do want to be an encouragement to you, but I do want to share with you as I open with an illustration about my own family and about some deaths in my immediate family that have caused me in that decade of my 50s to grapple with, uh, to come to an, a greater understanding of the concept of this vaporous life that we live. Let me share with you what I mean. Just as I was coming into the decade of my 50s, my father-in-law, or excuse me, my stepfather died. He was someone that I didn't really have as a father when I was growing up. My parents were divorced uh, when I was four years of age. And there was a sister and me as her brother, just the two of us, who were now alone with our mother, without a father. I'm four years of age. I can hardly recollect anything about those days. Maybe a flash or two in my mind every once in a while, but very, very fading and fleeting. And this man had come into my life, into my mother's life, very, very uh, late in the game, as it were. And while I had a relationship with him and I appreciated him, I was very saddened by his death. He was older. They were married, and I actually performed their wedding ceremony, which is strange. You're marrying your mother to someone. But I thought it was better for them to be married than to remain unmarried because they were living an unholy lifestyle. And so when they called me in 1987 and said, would you, would you marry us? I thought it was the right thing to do. And so I performed that ceremony. And for the next 22 years, I did have a relationship with him, not particularly as a father figure, but certainly as someone that I appreciated, though I don't think he knew the Lord. I know that my mother didn't know the Lord, and I'll explain a little bit about that in a moment. But when he died, it was, I'd say, the first time that I really had experienced a death in my most immediate family. And it was something that I thought a great deal about, this concept of death and the concept of someone that you know very personally and that you've been up close and personal with. What I didn't know is that that would be the start of seven deaths in my family in rapid-fire succession. And that's what the decade of my 50s were all about. After he died, and in 2016, I received a call from Arkansas, my home state, from a hospital where my mother had been admitted for a blood clot behind her right knee. And apparently, we think, though we don't know with certainty, that it could be that that blood clot has, had dislodged and had gone to her heart, and they were calling me on Christmas Day, which would have, in 2016, also been a Sunday, and I was just about to get up 
in my ministry in Thousand Oaks, California, as the pastor of our church, to give a Christmas message on Christmas Day. And I received the news from the medical doctor that your mother has had a massive heart attack in the middle of the night, and she has died. And that was, that was on the heels of the death of her husband. And it was especially heart-rending for me because my mother was not a believer. In fact, none of my family and extended family that goes back as far as I know were genuine believers. And my mother, shortly after I had seen this divorce at a young age from my own father, she became a Jehovah's Witness. And so in my growing up years, that's all I knew her to be, religiously speaking, a Jehovah's Witness. And I had witnessed to her after I came to Christ as a freshman in college for many of those years, including the time that I went back and performed that wedding ceremony for her. And I continued to talk to her about the Lord. I continued to insist that the Bible very clearly teaches that Jesus is God and so many other things about the ravages of Jehovah's Witness theology. And, and at certain junctures, she seemed to understand. But the problem was my mother was very volatile, a very angry person. And she was always a restless wanderer. I went to four different high schools. Just every year, she would say, it's time to move again. And I knew that she was running from the Lord, not that I knew it then, but that I know now. And so when I received that news that she had died and that she wasn't a believer, I was heartbroken. I, of course, had every design to continue through the next several years of her life to challenge her to repent and believe in the gospel. And when I received that news that she had died instantly, I, I was beside myself. And so the decade of my 50s continued. And then shortly after that, in December of 2017, December 2nd to be exact, I was in Baltimore, Maryland preaching for a dear pastor friend of mine, conducting a conference and then preaching for him, or at least so I thought. And on that Saturday, I received a phone call from my two youngest daughters. My wife and I have eight children, five girls and three boys. And these were the last two children in the home. And the next to last child, one of those girls, was being married herself the next week, the following Saturday of that week. And on this particular Saturday, she called me and said, Dad, something's wrong with Mom. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, she's saying nonsensical things. She's, she's obviously got something going on in her brain. And I said, well, let's get her to the emergency room immediately. Now, my wife was very healthy all of her life. I'd never known her to be unhealthy. In fact, we'd been married by that time over 30 years, and I had only known her to be active and dynamic in the home 
and tireless. I never even saw her take a nap. Now, with eight kids, you can understand why. But I knew something was terribly wrong. <clears throat> so they took her to the hospital, which is only, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple miles from my home. And they did some testing, and then at about five o'clock Eastern time in Baltimore, Maryland, my wife called me and said, they have found a large tumor mass in the left lobe of my lung, and it has already traveled to the brain, and they can see probably at least seven tumors there. And all they were able to say upon that diagnosis was, we're so sorry, Mrs. Quinn. Stage four, metastatic cancer of the lung, and it's spreading to all of the other glands of the body quite rapidly. They said, if we don't do any treatment at all, she will die in three months. And I just remembered hearing my wife's voice say such things. And I just did what you would do. I just said, no, no, Lord, please. And we cried, we prayed, and I said, I'm coming home right now. So my friend took me to the airport, and I had an overnight flight to Los Angeles, picked up by one of my sons, raced to the hospital in Thousand Oaks, California to be at the bedside of my dear wife. And when I arrived, we hugged and we prayed and we talked and we hugged and prayed and talked and asked the Lord for mercy. Shortly after that, her grand wish and prayer was, can I get out of the hospital to be able to go to my daughter's wedding next Saturday? And she was able to have massive steroidal treatment to, to downsize the swollenness of the brain, and she was able to be at our daughter's wedding. And the Lord gave her and our family two years and four months together but on 3.30, March 30th, just as COVID was hitting in 2020, at 4.40 p.m., my wife died and went home to be with the Lord. I miss her so dearly. I thought maybe as I was reaching into the decade of my 60s, very close, that the Lord would say with my stepfather and with my mother and now with my wife, these are the lessons that I've brought into your life so that you may learn and grow and mature. But there was more. Less than three months after my own wife's death, my sister died, my only sister. I was called and told that she had one week to live. She was smoking and drinking herself to death. And I really couldn't believe that because 
I hadn't heard a thing from her about these matters. And what's worse, in between my, my wife receiving that diagnosis and her death, we were experiencing, though my wife was very sick, the beautiful birth of another grandson. And my wife was so thrilled at the opportunity, knowing that she was dying, to be able to see this little guy. And she did. My oldest son and his wife had birthed a second son, and he was doing well, though he was premature, and they had him in the NICU unit just to care for him and get his weight up, and his name was Calvin Theodore. And he was about four days of old, four days of age old, and I was able to, to see him and rejoice with him, and so was Beth, and I was so, so grateful that she was able to see this little one. But something happened that we couldn't have imagined. The hospital personnel wanted to give him a little bit more nutrients in a pick line. And unbeknownst to all of us, including the hospital personnel, the pick line was not properly sterilized. And two days later, he died. And I was just crying out to the Lord, what, what is going on with my stepfather and my mother and my wife and my little grandson and now my sister and it wasn't over. I got a call shortly after the last death, and I was told, your favorite aunt has died. And she was an aunt who was more of a mother to me than my mother was a mother to me. When my mother was restlessly wandering over states and jobs and situations, this aunt in my young high school days took care of me and fed me and washed my clothes and was kind to me, and I was so grateful, and I was so saddened to hear about her death, and I ended up having to go in just a few months in between to the same cemetery to bury not only my sister at 61 years of life and now to bury my favorite aunt. And I surely thought things were over, at least for a while. And five months ago, my sweet, dear, believing mother-in-law, my wife's mother, was having surgical procedure for an aortic valve replacement, and it was very successful. But when they were taking a tube out of her leg for drainage purposes, unfortunately, as they were removing it, an artery burst and she bled out and died. And so just this past May, I had to go back to Little Rock, Arkansas to do her memorial service, that being the seventh death on either side of the decade of my 50s. And I say all of this to you to say that it has been underscored in my life in ways I would never have imagined that life is a vapor. Life is very short. 
And as I was reading my Bible and asking the Lord for direction and guidance and instruction and encouragement and admonishment, my heart went to Psalm 39. Could you open to Psalm 39 in your Bibles? Psalm 39. Undoubtedly, you have read this psalm many times, some of you. Some of you, it may be the first time ever. And in the 25 minutes or so that we have left, I want to be able just to give you a very, very quick exposition of this psalm that might encourage you because it has certainly been of great encouragement to me regarding this concept of life as a vapor. And what are we to learn during our very short life on earth? Listen to Psalm 39. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version, and then I'll make a few additional comments about the NASB and word change. Psalm 39, to the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. The NESB says how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, or as the NES says, a phantom. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Do you see at the end of verse 5, it also has that word selah. You probably have heard that it's, we think, a kind of musical term that means maybe something like interlude, where the words are not being sung, but the music is being played. And it probably is there to challenge us to meditate, to think of the words as the music is being played. Ponder, meditate on the words. Verse 7, and now, O Lord... For what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool, or the NAS, the reproach of the foolish. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me, your plague. I am spent by the hostility of your hand, When you 
Discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, or do not be silent at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest or a stranger like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now with these 13 verses in our Bible for Psalm 39, I see four easy and memorable principles regarding what David is challenging the children of Israel to sing. Because remember, this is a song. This is a song to be sung. This might even be a song that would be sung here at Mission Road Bible Church. This is a lament psalm. That means that it is sung in a minor key. It's, it's a it's like a dirge. It's, it's, it's someone who is hurting, someone who is in a bad way, a challenging place. And these four principles have been what the Lord has used to encourage and instruct and rebuke and admonish me that I need to learn in light of all of these deaths in my family. And the first principle is this. Be careful. Be careful. Now, the first principle stated that way begs the question, be careful of what? Well, look at the first three verses. I said, does David, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. Now, that's a good attribute. That's, that's good. You don't want to say things, especially when you're under it, when you're in a bad way, when you're going through a test or a trial, especially like me with these rapid-fire deaths over a very short period of time, just a little bit more than a, a decade, I too need to guard my ways so that I may not sin with my tongue. In what way? Well, just think about it. With, with all of these deaths in a very close proximity to each other and with all of those in an immediate family context, you and I might be tempted, might be tempted to say, God is arbitrary, capricious, unfair. You, you heard me quote myself when I hear this news of my dear wife and I say, no! Now, in so many ways, that's natural when you hear in a moment's notice about your dear wife and no problems in her health at all, and then the most bleak kind of prognosis, death in three months? No! But notice what David goes on to say. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I have a responsibility, not just as king of Israel, but I have a responsibility as a believer 
to ensure that when believers are asking me about the trials of my life, including the vapor-like life and existence that you and I experience, yeah, that's right, God's unfair. And David says, I refuse to do that. I refuse. As long as the wicked are in my presence, I will not indict God. You say, now wait a minute. Look, I've read through not only this psalm, but a whole batch of other psalms, maybe all 150 of the songbook of Israel. And there are occasions in which these psalmists, whoever they might be, are asking tough questions, and they are saying things seem to be unfair, and God, what are you doing, and why are you doing it? Yes, that's true, but there's a big difference in asking questions, in seeking through the probing questions to understand. There's a big difference between that and indicting God and challenging His character, because remember, He knows all things. He's perfect. And as Psalm 119.68a, which has become a sort of life verse for me, it says this, God is good and does good. That's my rock in troubled times. That's my anchor when I'm realizing death after death after death after death, and it's not ending Sure, it's somewhat natural to say, and Lord, when will these deaths end? And why? And what's the point? And I've lost my wife and my grandson and, and my mother didn't repent and, and my favorite aunt and my own sister drinking and, and carousing and smoking herself to death. Lord, but the answer to that is, God is good, and He does good. And if you and I knew the full picture, we'd be saying something like this, it's hard, but hallelujah to a perfect and righteous God who we can eminently trust. And that's what David wants to say. I've got to be careful with my mouth. I've got to muzzle myself. Now, even when that happens... And even when you, you muzzle yourself, especially in the audience of unbelievers, so that you're not like they are, indicting God and calling God unfair and capricious and arbitrary in His ways, that doesn't mean, as David tells us in verse 2, that everything is peachy keen. Notice what he says in verse 2, I was mute and silent, I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. That's, my friends, what I call honesty. Brute honesty. Lord, I'm trying to apply the passages that you're giving me. I've been counseled by others. I want to do the right thing. I want to be the right person. And I don't certainly want to speak in the presence of unbelievers in a way that demeans your character and questions your goodness. But it hasn't helped my heart. I'm sad. Sometimes my friends, I even two and a half years later after her death, reflectively in the night watches reach over my hand to make sure she's there, and she's not there! 
but God is there. He's right there. And in the night watches, he takes me up into his arms and he says, trust, trust, trust me. And I say, yes, Father, I, I do trust you and I want to trust you even more. Help me trust you even more. David's going through something. And perhaps even his distress of verse 2 and even verse 3, my, my heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Perhaps he's fighting the idea of indicting God, of calling God unfair, of, of, of being so quickly needing not to, but being so hot within himself, the fire is burning, it's unfair. And what ultimately is he saying beyond just being careful with your mouth? Second principle, be, be clear. Be clear. Verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, I, I spoke with my tongue, the end of verse 3. And verse 4 says, O Lord, Yahweh, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Part of this is that David is, is hot within, but he's also recognizing I'm a mere man. You, you are God. Well, what, is your, what is your answer to the challenges and the trials and the tests and the vicissitudes of life? What's your answer? Why am I in it? Why is this happening? I don't want to sin with my tongue amidst unbelievers, and yet it's not helping me because my heart is still burning within me. And one of the things that I I'm learning that I have to know about myself is that when I compare myself with God, here's the answer. I'm fleeting. I've got to know how fleeting I am, how transient I am. Verse 5, you've made my days a few hand breaths. That's the breadth of your hand. That's, that's the measurement that a Hebrew person would say if I took a ruler and I measured my thumb to my pinky, and it would be four inches, five inches, maybe six inches. That's the extent of my life. It's a six-inch life. And he says, my lifetime is as nothing before you. You're eternal. You're, you're perfect. I'm not eternal, and I'm very imperfect. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Stop the words. The music is playing. Ponder, meditate, think about this. Your life, my life is just one exhale. That's it. In comparison to eternity, it's one inhale and an exhale. Surely a man, verse 6, goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now he even begins to to lift off the veil of some people in this life, like the wealthy man, like the rich man, 
who's all about spending all of his vapor-like days thinking about his cash. You remember the man in the Gospels? who Jesus depicted as the man who owned much and he had many barns and he was amassing even more than his barns could contain. And so he says to himself, as a fat, rich man, I'll have to build bigger barns so that all of my produce could be amassed in such barns. And Jesus says, you fool! Tonight your soul is required of you. Now, who will own what you possess? We say it in a somewhat mocking way. You've never seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul, right? Can't take it with you. You can amass all of the wealth of the world. Man heaps up wealth and doesn't know who will gather. Can't take it with you. David says, i got to be clear about life as a vapor. And the Bible says that all over the place. The book of Ecclesiastes, Psalm 90, other pieces and places in the wisdom literature. Our life is so short. What do you value? What are you pursuing? If you're not pursuing the spiritual things of your life as priority number one, then you're going to have a rude awakening. That's what he's saying. I've got to be clear about that. I have to be careful what I say, especially in the hearing of unbelievers, and I've got to be absolutely clear as I am careful about how life is a vapor. And then he says, third, be contrite. Be contrite. Do you see that there, verses 7 to 11? Be contrite. In other words, be repentant. Learn and grow how you are being whipped by the Lord. You say, whipped? No, look, I I have salvation. I have Jesus as my Lord. Yes, but even our Heavenly Father gives us sweet, purposeful whipping, discipline, scourging, like Hebrews 12 says. And for the moment, it doesn't seem joyful. It seems nothing but sorrowful. But afterwards, Hebrews 12 said, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? No one wants to be taken to the spiritual woodshed. Nobody wants to to have God put you in his doghouse. Nobody wants that. And David has to add here, not only be careful and be clear, but be contrite. And then he starts to confess his own sin. Notice what he says. And now, O Lord, verse 7, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. You're my only hope for this life and for this vapor-like existence. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. You know what he's saying? Look, I have to admit, I'm a sinner. You see, that's part of what's so wrong with so many people in the world, and particularly in the good old U.S. of A., where they just cannot bring themselves to say, I am a sinner. I I think bad things, I say bad things, I do bad things and I do them consistently, and this is the character of my life, and this is who I am, and this is what I do. Just do a man-in-the-street interview. Put a microphone under someone and say, are you a sinner? Oh, well, I mean, nobody's perfect. But I don't. I've never shot. I try to... And they whitewash the deal. 
hey, here are the sins I've never committed, so that's got to be good for something. Oh, but all of those secret sins, hey, lay off, back off. This is, this is David doing the opposite. He's totally contrite. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. Don't make me look in unbelievers' eyes like I'm just like them. I'm going to admit my transgressions. Verse 9, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Done what? Verse 10, you stroked me. You rebuked me. You, You took your fatherly hand of discipline, and you put it to my seat of learning. That's what he's saying. And now he says, I think I may have come to myself. I think I may have learned the lesson that you've been teaching me. Why? Because verse 10, remove your stroke from me. The NAS, remove your plague. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. In other words, Lord, I get the point. Now, now we don't know what kinds of sins. We don't don't know if he's talking generically. We don't know if he's talking specifically. But here's what he's saying in essence. I need to be contrite every day of my life. I need to live a life of repentance and brokenness. I I need to admit I'm a transgressor. I need to admit that I am living a vapor life existence and that you are God and that I am not and I need your disciplines. Verse 11, rebukes for sin. Then he says, you consume like a moth what is dear to me. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. And he goes right back to this. And he says, Selah, just think about it. Mull it over. Consider it. Yes, even sing about it. Sing a lament psalm about your life, about how when God disciplines me, he disciplines me for my good. And if there are things that are happening in your life, like the death of untold loved ones, and you and I are saying, but why, but why? And we're always asking the why question when we should also be asking this question, Lord, what do you want me to learn? How do you want me to respond? How am I to grow closer in conformity to Jesus Christ as a result of people that I dearly love? And I'll surely tell you one lesson I've learned, and that is my dear wife is alive. She's alive. And that this has shown to me in bold measure the continuity between this life and the life to come. You know, we think, so many of us, it's, it's all about now, it's all about this, it's all about my life, it's all about what I'm, what I'm amassing, it's all about my family, it's all about the grandkids, and I love grandkids, I have 13 of them. But this life is not all there is. There is a life to come. And so I'm learning And the Lord is stroking me ever so gently so that I may learn that mankind's life is a breath, mine included. I have to be contrite. I have to be repentant. I have to live a life of repentance. I have to learn the Lord's sharp lessons even 
as in the night watches, he pulls me up into his bosom and he meets with me there. The last point is be consistent. Be consistent. Be careful. Be clear. Be contrite and be consistent. Look at verses 12 and 13 as we close. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, or do not be silent at my tears. What's he saying? Well, he's praying. Here's my prayer, O Lord, and I want you, please, accentuatingly, to give ear to my cry. I'm crying out to you. I need your peace. How much of us, how many of us, need the peace of God in profoundly tragic situations. Of course, we all do. But especially at those acute times when we are really hurting. You know, the hardest thing I had to do was on that ride from the hotel where I was in Baltimore, Maryland, to Dallas Airport to call eight children, eight adult children, and starting in birth order with my oldest all the way down to the youngest and say what I told you about their mother. And every one of them, no, Dad, no! I know you love your mother. And I love my wife. But this is a time where as we are crying out to our God, He will minister to us. And all eight of them are seeing the truth of that being lived out in their lives as they're seeing the goodness of God and the grace of God and the peace of God. David says, I'm a sojourner with you. With who? With my fathers, uh, with those who've come before me and we're like guests, we're like strangers. We're all passing through. You know the song, you probably sung it. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. This is not all there is. There's a life to come. There's continuity between this life and the life to come. And in that life, what does the book of Revelation say? No more tears. No more sorrow. Nothing but full resplendent joy. I can't wait. This world, we got a job to do. And it can be sweet and loving. And it can be wonderful. But oh, it can have so many tears. And, and there's something else to consistently ask God for, not just peace, but look at verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again. You say, what does that mean? Or the NAS, turn your gaze away from me. No, in, in times of trouble, in times of sorrow, I don't want God to look away from me. I want him to look to me. Well, what he's saying, look away from me, is finish your fatherly discipline of my life. Finish that. I've learned the lesson. Look away from me with your discipline and now look to me with your smile. I'd say the smile of grace, the smile of love. So 
Peace and love, peace and grace, peace and a smile. That's what you and I have to consistently ask God for. Be consistent in your prayers. This is a prayer of his. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. I'm praying consistently for you to give me not tears, but peace, to give me the end of discipline and the beginning of your loving smile, he says, before I depart and am no more. Well, what a psalm. What a psalm. Oh, my beloved friends, this is, this is only going to be true for those who believe in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, you're not going to know this peace and you're not going to be the recipient of grace his smile will not be upon you. You will be judged eternally. And the continuity of that life is also true. You will go from this life as an unbeliever to a life of unmistakable and hideous judgment. And I ask you, just where you're sitting, let's bow together, close our eyes, and you ask the question about yourself, where am I in relation to God? Do I know him? Do I love him? Do I trust him? Have I put my faith and confidence in Jesus Christ, his only son? Have I, like David said, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge my transgressions. I'm going to be contrite about them. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I put my full confidence, my trust, my life, my forever in Christ's hands. He died on that cross. He gave up his life as a ransom for many. He, he died on that cross so that I could forever live. Not in judgment, not in hell, but in heaven and the joys that await where there are no tears no sorrow, and where even those who as believers, like my dear wife and others who have died, we have the confidence, we have the unshakable promise that one day we too will be joined with our physical bodies and in our spirit as we are rejoined, we will be worshiping the Savior who laid down his life for us forever and ever. If you would like to pray a prayer just in the silence of your own heart. Pray this, Lord, forgive me of my sins. And please, allow me, give me the way, the, the opportunity to place my faith, my trust, my whole life in the hands of the one who died, Jesus I believe in him. I entrust my soul to him. I, I ask that you would allow him to show me how to navigate this life and how to be on my way to heaven. If that's your heart, if that's your prayer, ask him for forgiveness. Acknowledge your transgressions and seek 
with all your heart, his forgiving grace and peace. Lord, thank you for giving us such a wonderful morning together. Thank you for the corporate singing. Thank you for the prayers. Thank you for the reading of God's word. Thank you for its exposition. Please allow us with our health, even though our life is a vapor, to return again and again so that we might hear the truth of the word of God. May you be pleased with our lives, as vaporous as they are, and give us what we need so that after we have been rightly disciplined by you, we will see once again your smile. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.